Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. In the spring of 1590, a violent storm erupted on the North Sea, somewhere between Scotland and Scandinavia. Trapped in the tempest was a convoy of 16 wooden vessels, one of which carried an important cargo, the King of Scotland and his Danish Queen. Miraculously, the ship survived the tempest and limped into harbour at Leith, but neither the royal couple nor the admiral of the fleet were happy simply to have survived. They felt someone was to blame for their near-death experience, and we're not talking about the BBC weatherman, Michael Fish. Their suspicions were darker, and of the variety that stretched credulity, not to mention any reasonable concept of justice. This storm was the work of the devil, and it sparked a wave of bloody and cruel witch hunts that caused terror through the Kingdom of Denmark and inspired a second equally devastating period of persecution throughout Britain. In this episode, I investigate the Witches of Denmark. According to the Saxon chronicler Widdekind, Denmark formally embraced Christianity at the command of Harold Bluetooth, whose name was inspired by a rotten fang rather than a cellular device. He was a Danish king who ruled towards the end of the first millennium AD. Christianity had made some inroads into Denmark a few hundred years earlier, but Wittekind tells us that the God of the Bible was accepted as a God, but not the only God. And in fact, there were numerous pagan gods who were viewed as being more powerful. But this all changed when Harold decided to put the Christian God to the test. He instructed a cleric named Popo to pick up a piece of red-hot iron that had just been pulled from a fire. Popo happily agreed, no doubt to gasps from around the room as everyone would have expected the steaming hunk of metal to melt his flesh. Miraculously though, Popo was able to handle the iron without picking up so much as a scratch. This was possible, he said, due to the intervention of his god, Jehovah. Harold was suitably impressed, and immediately forbade the worship of false idols. The story of Harold's conversion bears similarities with the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Essentially, we have a follower of the Abrahamic God winning over a powerful man by demonstrating that my God has more powerful magic than yours. While many Scandinavians ditched runes and incantations to Odin and replaced them with prayers of intercession to their favourite saint, Almost immediately, the powers-to-be began to root out people who continued to attribute magic or miracles to forces other than God. Magicians had a bad name, going back to Simon Magus, the sorcerer in Acts of the Apostles, who performed similar kinds of miracles to Jesus, but who was not seemingly acting on behalf of God. Suffice to say, it was a rough time to be a sorcerer in Denmark. 
Consequently, in 1080 AD, Pope Gregory VII sent a letter to the Danish king urging him to stop persecuting women specifically who were being accused of conducting these type of activities. Denmark's embrace of Christianity came about 300 years after England's and almost 700 years after the Roman Empire had adopted the religion under Constantine. But while the court of Harold Bluetooth was quick to fall in line with Rome, paganism continued in rural areas of Scandinavia for much longer, and on a broader scale, it wasn't until 1387 that Lithuania, a nation just across the Baltic Sea, technically adopted the religion. Suffice to say, pagan religions and related customs and superstitions still had a certain hold on the Kingdom of Denmark towards the end of the 16th century. By this time, Iceland had fallen under Danish rule, and the remote, rocky outcrop of 50,000 people hadn't been so thoroughly Christianized as mainland Europe. Traditional spells, usually associated with healing the sick, were still commonly used. Meanwhile, science was in its infancy. What we now see as the science of astronomy was often commingled with the superstition of astrology. Alchemy was another blend of science and magic, while medicine relied heavily on a mix of herbal potions and superstitions. Necromancy, the summoning of the dead, was something widely practiced by educated males across Europe, and for some time it drew very little attention. But by the 14th century, clerics across Europe were starting to scrutinize various kinds of so-called demonic activity. The form Macarius, written by the German Dominican Johann Neider, included a lengthy section on witchcraft. He argued that sorcery was of the devil, and that women, who were in his view the weakest sex, were especially prone to making deals with Satan in order to receive magical powers. Another book by another German, the Malaeus Maleficarum, authored by Heinrich Kramer, accused witches of being in league with Satan, of killing babies, conducting harmful spells, and of flying. But crucially, he linked these activities and other sorcery with heresy. And heretics, as the early proto-Protestant Jan Hus had discovered, were to be burnt at the stake. In essence, the burnings that have become synonymous with witches were actually a device used for anyone guilty of heresy, be they Catholic, Protestant, or, allegedly, a witch. In the same century as these works, laws were passed in Denmark dealing with witches who cast harmful spells. Similarly, some church leaders warned priests about the dangers of witches stealing communion bread or holy water to use in magic and unholy rituals. There are a few documented cases of Danish witch trolls before the 16th century, but it was in that century that things really ratcheted up, and it had a lot to do with a schism within Christianity. Martin Luther, a hitherto obscure German priest, plunged Europe into chaos when he produced his 95 theses that both criticised the Catholic Church and laid out a roadmap for reform. Conflict soon erupted between supporters of Luther and those who were loyal to the Pope. Denmark, and Northern Europe generally, embraced Lutheranism, 
while Southern Europe remained largely Catholic. A lot of people, both Catholics and Protestants, found themselves being accused of heresy by the other group. In some areas, Jews were also persecuted, as each strand of Christianity tried to cement its hold on the society. It was a period of intolerance, and the firebrands soon turned their attention to those who were not just heretics, but also witches. Many of the Danish clergy were educated in Germany and thoroughly indoctrinated into Martin Luther's reformist ideals. On returning to Denmark, like Luther, they argued that one of the issues with Catholicism was the infusion of corrupting practices and rituals inherited from paganism. The role of Mary, the role of the saints, the veneration of relics, supposedly the bones of saints, and various other ideas were seen as idolatrous and linked to ancient non-Christian ideals and the devil. Peter Palladius was prominent among the Lutheran clergy in the mid-16th century. He was an outspoken critic of both Catholicism and traditional religions. But unlike earlier clerics, he broadened the definition of witchcraft beyond those using magic to do harm and included the so-called cunning folk, people who were practitioners of good magic. Maleficium, or evil magic, was already illegal, but the Lutherans argued that good magic was just as bad, as it involved invoking powers other than God, and that amounted to idolatry. Across the border in Germany, both Catholic and Protestant leaders had ramped up burnings of heretics and alleged witches. This soon caught the attention of the Danes, and by the late 1580s, there was much discussion about the threat of witchcraft. Things moved up several gears when King Christian IV's sister Anne was betrothed to marry King James VI of Scotland. Her ship set sail. But almost sank due to a ferocious storm. Impatient to tie the knot, James set sail for Oslo, where the two were finally married. But on their journey back to Scotland, another storm unexpectedly struck, and again the boat came close to sinking. To make matters worse, Jane Kennedy, a member of Anne's household, died when her boat sunk in another storm, and two of the ships in the original Danish fleet had been damaged by accidental cannon fire. It was an unlikely series of mishaps, and the Admiral of the fleet, Peter Monk, got into a furious argument with the state treasurer, Christopher Valkendroff, about the state of the ships. Valkendroff needed a scapegoat, and he found one in the form of Anna Coldings. Not only was she already in jail and awaiting execution for being a witch, but she'd recently had a falling out with Peter Monk, the admiral of the fleet. While in prison, she had already been dubbed the mother of the devil for confessing to witchcraft, albeit after being tortured, and she supposedly confirmed her guilt in subsequent discussions with priests. Coldings told Valkendroff that he was in fact correct, and she did cast a spell on the ships, but in line with thinking at the time, such actions were usually arranged by a coven of witches, holding what later became known as a Black Sabbath. Conveniently, Coldings claimed that yes, indeed, she had a group of five other women including the wife of the local mayor, and they were responsible for both storms. 
One of the accused husbands tried to defend her, only to find himself charged and arrested with witchcraft. After torture-induced confessions, a total of 12 women were charged, tried, and executed. As if the apparent incompetence of Valkendroth leading to 12 executions wasn't bad enough, upon hearing of the trials in Denmark, King James VI of Scotland, who until this time had had little interest in witchcraft, launched his own investigation, leading to dozens of additional executions in Berwick. The Copenhagen Witch Trials are probably the most famous case in Denmark, largely because they spawned the even more extensive witch hunts in Scotland. But a similar saga had unfolded 50 years earlier, when Christian IV's grandfather was on the throne. On that occasion, a fleet of 40 ships ran into trouble. A woman named Gilda Spandemanger was accused of having cast a spell on the fleet. She named several co-conspirators, one of whom had an alibi. She'd been seen by multiple people in another town when she was supposedly at the Black Sabbath. She was exonerated, but this didn't seem to create any alarm bells in terms of false confessions being produced, and Spandmarga was burnt at the stake. Twenty years later, another group of women were blamed when some ship sank in Gotland. So Denmark had a history of tying mishaps at sea to witches, specifically female ones, long before James VI's fateful voyage. But the Danes faced more tangible threats at sea than witchcraft, and pirates were at the top of the list. In 1799, King Christian IV set sail for Finland, ostensibly to rout out some pirates, but while there he encountered the Sami people. Living on the fringes of Europe, they'd hung on to their traditional beliefs, despite the best efforts of occasional visitors from Russia and Germany. Their form of religion fell into the era's broad definition of witchcraft. Nonetheless, one of the sailors risked the ire of the natives by stealing a particularly furry cat. The woman who owned it became quite hysterical as she saw her pet taken aboard. A short while later, the ship ran into bad weather, and the crew concluded that she'd placed a curse on the boat. Interestingly, the king, despite his prior actions, ridiculed this suggestion. But the bad weather continued, and after a mock trial, the crew resolved to execute the seemingly enchanted cat. The king, though, overruled them and released the cat into the sea, safely stowed in a wooden barrel, along with a plentiful supply of fish. The weather changed dramatically, and the men continued their journey safely. Christian's secretary claims the king not only believed the Sami woman had released them from a spell, but in her gratitude, she'd cast another spell to ensure him a successful reign. The last point is interesting, as it emphasizes the fact that even the monarch had some belief in the traditional notions of good spells. Despite this, in 1617, he passed an ordinance that imposed penalties on witches, regardless of their benevolence or maleficence. Cunning folk, who included all manner of soothsayers, purveyors of traditional medicines and charms, were subject to exile. But people who used magic for harmful purposes were believed to be in league with the devil, and they were subject to the death penalty. 
The former group could really include anyone doing unchristian or basically unlutheran things. This potentially opened the door to exiling Catholics. But generally speaking, the courts only focused on those accused of doing harm. Another element of the legislation, though, incentivized the public to identify malevolent witches by suggesting that failing to name and shame a witch meant you were an accomplice and potentially you could be rounded up in the next witch hunt. Unsurprisingly, allegations of witchcraft skyrocketed as people settled scores with neighbours or pointed fingers at outsiders and vagabonds. But a simple accusation was not enough under this ordinance. The accuser had to show proof of harm. If you said your neighbour was a witch, he or she might be exiled. If you could point to a barren field and say your neighbour caused the harvest to fail, then he or she would most likely end up being burnt at the stake. For about eight years, a witching panic swept Denmark. Records of most of the trials have been lost, but we do have extensive documentation for Jyland, where almost 300 people were killed. This wave of killing subsided in 1625, possibly because all the misfits and unpopular people had been killed off based on trumped-up charges. But as was the case elsewhere in Europe, 80% of those killed were women. However, another area of Danish territory, Iceland, bucked this trend as men formed the majority of those tried on the volcanic outcrop. Iceland, like Denmark, had a long history of magic and rituals, but unlike the Christianized Denmark, Iceland had been slower to abandon its Nordic customs. Even in the 17th century, magic, both Gelder, or white magic, and of course bad, or black magic, were common in Iceland. Gaudra masters used runes and incantations whilst performing all manner of spells. The majority were intended to boost the harvest or offer other positive outcomes, but there were plenty of advocates of the dark arts. One such person was Gonskog Nikulason, nicknamed Grimmy. He was a Catholic bishop who produced a book of black magic called Rald Skinner, or Redskin. Despite the celibacy required by his day job, he had children with at least two women and was known to be ambitious and cruel. He travelled Iceland collecting the darkest and most heinous spells he could find and documented them in his book. One surviving spell from this era instructs the sorcerer to extract a rib from a recently deceased corpse then stow it between a woman's breast in order to summon up a two-headed snake equipped at stealing goat's milk. A folklore museum in Iceland also documents a pair of trousers made from human skin that supposedly gave the wearer mystical powers. The veracity of the so-called necropants has been questioned by historians, but records of spells do survive to this day. These are the types of things that made their way into Gottskalk's book. It's claimed the author thought he could control Satan if he mastered the dark arts. Evidently he failed and was reportedly buried with his book in 1520. Almost two centuries later, a man named Lofter Portsteinson sought to emulate Gottskalk 
and became a master sorcerer. It's claimed he murdered a friend who refused to help him cast a spell that would have caused the dead to rise. He spent years unsuccessfully trying to locate the Raoul Skinner book before his apparent failure drove him insane. He then rode out to sea and is believed to have drowned. Despite their apparently legitimate credentials as witches of the unsavoury kind, neither man faced any kind of retribution from the authorities. In fact, while laws existed forbidding heresy and therefore witchcraft as early as 1564, few people were concerned with the devil, as Christianity in Iceland was pretty weak. Therefore, if there was no God, there was no devil to worry about. But this started to change after Denmark passed ordinances aimed at witches in 1617. As elsewhere, the witch hunts were driven by the Lutheran clergy, and the accused would only be acquitted if they could find 12 neighbours willing to swear an oath to their innocence. Unsurprisingly, few people trusted their neighbours enough to take such an oath. As many as 20 men were executed for casting spells, compared with just two women. This gender imbalance was driven by the culture. In the remote, sparsely populated nation, the women were the homemakers, while the men went out to work. This meant men had more access to information of all kinds, and of course the freedom to allegedly attend Black Sabbaths. Additionally, during the Catholic era, women were forbidden from Latin schools, which meant men were better educated and able to read dark works, such as those found in the Raoult Skinner. One woman who did die was Thuridir Olafsdottir, in what must be one of the greatest miscarriages of the era, even by witch-hunting standards. Thuridir and her son were poor. They headed west seeking opportunities in 1678. It was an arduous trek across icy lakes and rugged terrain. Friends and family later explained that she'd lived all her life on the northern coast of Iceland, where neither she nor anyone else had much knowledge of Gelder or any kind of magic. But unbeknownst to her and her son, her destination, Seladalur, was a hotbed of witch hunting and the place where most witch burnings had occurred. When they arrived, someone had commented on what a tough journey it must have been. Her cocky son quipped that it was easy because his mother knew magic. This remark caused some consternation, but when the local priest's wife fell ill, the townsfolk decided the duo and their black magic must be to blame. Like so many others, they were then burnt at the stake. Back on the mainland in Denmark, witch hunts continued, albeit sporadically. In one famous case, a woman called Anne Petz's daughter, Castafol, was arrested. She was a pauper who was known to make money by selling sachets of herbs and hair that was supposed to bring the buyer good fortune or good health. Essentially, she was doing the kind of good magic that ordinarily would get you exiled. But she ran into trouble when she kept going to the house of a man named Simon, whose daughter had suddenly been taken ill. The family thought it a bit weird, as they barely knew her, though it's reasonable to assume she was perhaps hoping to make some money from selling them some wares since her daughter was sick. Unfortunately for Anne, neighbours claimed to see her throw something over the doorway of the house on the very day the girl fell ill. And upon investigation, 
it turned out that she'd been subject to an eviction order on account of her witchcraft years before. She decided not to comply. That, coupled with the fact she was found to be the mother of several illegitimate children at a time of almost Puritan-style morality, was enough to convince the court that she was another witch and she was sent to the bonfire. With the death of the seemingly witch-obsessed King Christian IV in 1648, witch-hunting had lost its zealous champion, and by 1686, two kings later, a law was enacted that forbade executions unless authorised by the High Court in Copenhagen. This effectively brought down the curtain on witch-hunts in Iceland, as it wasn't really practical to transport suspects back and forth across the North Sea. But the last female execution in Denmark occurred in 1693, and once again it was a woman named Anne. She was accused of destroying a harvest, of cursing a home by urinating in the yard, and of having caused the death of a love rival. She confessed to all three crimes, and even claimed she'd met Satan in the form of a cat. She later recanted her story, and said she'd made a false confession while being tortured. But it wasn't enough to save her from her fate though the king did intervene and allow her to be beheaded before her body was burnt. The last man, one of the few males executed in Denmark, was Johann Pistorius, who was executed in 1722. He was a soldier who was court-martialed after making a pact with the devil. He explained he'd got the idea after reading the book, Dr. Faustus. But Denmark's bloody legacy continued, even if later death sentences for witches weren't actually upheld, the last of which was passed in 1803. The last known killing was another woman named Anne or Anna. She was beaten to death by a mob in 1800, over a hundred years after the notorious Salem witch hunts in Massachusetts. But as far as records show, her case was the last, meaning Innocent people, especially those called Anne, could rest easy in Denmark. Well, stone the flaming crows, it's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.